Welcome to the Texas Conflict Coach radio program. If you have ever experienced or engaged in destructive or unresolved conflict, then you know it leads to broken relationships, distrust, and damaging results. Our program will help you manage and resolve conflict effectively with strategies, valuable resources, and support. I am your host, Patty Porter. My guest hosts, Dina Zametta and Stephen Kotev, along with our guest experts, will share our experiences, raise your awareness, and give you food for thought. We will share with you problem-solving strategies, no matter what your situation is, at work, with neighbors or friends, family, and as partners. Tune in or join in the conversation every Tuesday evening. Welcome, listeners, and thank you for joining us for Being Both, Embracing Two Religions and One Interfaith Family, part of our holiday conflict series. More than a third of all new marriages now occur between people with different religious affiliations or between religious and non-religious people. Whether the couple is Protestant and Jewish or Catholic and atheist or Buddhist and Hindu, they share a certain perspective as interfaith families. So how do interfaith families bridge those religious gaps, find support, and create plans for the religious education of their children? Susan Katzmiller is here with us to describe a number of pathways that interfaith families can take. She also encourages interfaith families to see their relationships as a source of inspiration, creative energy, and peacemaking in the world, rather than simply as a problem or a challenge to be solved. Journalist Susan Katzmiller is a former Newsweek reporter and the author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. She is the founder of the National Network of Interfaith Family Groups on Facebook, and a consultant who works with clergy, religious educators, and religious communities to better appreciate the role of interfaith families today. I am your guest host for the evening, Tracy Colbert King, and we invite you to participate in the conversation via Twitter using hashtag ConflictChat. Welcome to the program, Susan. I'm so glad to be here. For our listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you tell us who is Susan Katzmiller. <laughs> well, I am an interfaith child myself, so my parents were in an interfaith marriage, and I'm an interfaith parent. I have two grown children now. Uh, I was raised in Judaism, and my husband was raised as a Protestant, so we have an interfaith marriage, and we decided to raise our children with both Judaism and Christianity in a community of interfaith families. I then wrote this book because I really didn't see my positive experience in an interfaith family reflected in the literature. A lot of the literature Mm -hmm. was very negative about interfaith families. And so I surveyed and interviewed 200 interfaith parents and a lot of young adults who had positive experiences by and large, and that forms the backbone of my book. That's wonderful because this is actually a topic that's close to home for you, having an interfaith child and being interfaith parents and marrying into an interfaith family, and then also seeing the perspective of, hey, this isn't as bad as everyone says it is. Let me give the world a different perspective than what currently is in the literature today. 
Exactly. A, a lot of what had been written about interfaith families had not been written by people in interfaith families. A lot of uh, work yeah. had been written by clergy who disapproved of interfaith families. So I think it's always important to hear you know, the stories of the people themselves, uh, let them tell their own stories. Absolutely. Can you define for us what an interfaith marriage is? So an interfaith marriage is any marriage between partners who have different religious beliefs. Now, not everybody agrees on who would be included in that definition. So some Uh researchers would consider all Christians to be one group. Um, And then others would say, well, an evangelical Protestant married to a Catholic, uh, that's also an interfaith marriage. Um, But some people would call that an interchurch marriage since they're both Christians. They're just different denominations, different um, types of Christians, uh, rather than an interfaith marriage. But another way of looking at it is that every marriage is an interfaith marriage because no two people have identical beliefs, identical ways of practicing their religion, you know, identical connections to the culture of the religion. And so really, when we talk about interfaith marriages, a lot of what we talk about is relevant to any marriage, any couple. You introduced a new concept that I was not familiar with is the interchurch marriage, the idea that you're marrying in, but there's different denominations that you're both practicing, although you're all of one faith, the Christian faith. And I like the spin that you put on the idea that every marriage is an interfaith marriage because everyone goes into that marriage with the way that they've been practicing their religion. Right, exactly. And even though, you know, you might both be Methodists and there is, you know, a set of beliefs that that Methodists are expected to ascribe to, but when you talk to an individual person who happens to be a Methodist, you know, they may or may not believe this part of it or that part of it. They might have grown up Mm -hmm. with, you know, different, different ways of practicing based on which particular church they went to, who their particular pastor was. You know, we all come with our own experiences and our own family experiences, and that is part of our religious identity. So no two people really have identical religious identities. So, you know, an interfaith marriage could be a Christian married to somebody who's Jewish. It could be a Buddhist married to someone who's Muslim. Um, We also include people who have a religious affiliation, but they're married to somebody who does not have a religious affiliation. And that is actually the most common and fastest growing type of interfaith marriage among millennials, among young people right now. Um, The most common is actually a Christian married to a religiously unaffiliated person. And that person could be an atheist or an agnostic or a secular humanist, Or they could be somebody who believes in God, but they don't identify with any one particular religion. So um, researchers sometimes call these people the spiritual but not religious. Um, So that's a very important group now is Christians married to people who who do not have a, a particular religious affiliation. Have you found in your research from generation to generation that the marriage the interfaith marriages change. You mentioned that millennials right now have the Christian, their Christians are marrying the spiritual, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We definitely see trends over time, and it depends on the geography. I mean, in mm-hmm. the United States, 
For instance, you know, when we say interfaith marriage, a lot of people think of a Christian and Jewish marriage because there's been a lot written about that here. And if you change to a different geographic location, if you go to India, for instance, if you say interfaith marriage, they're going to think Hindu-Muslim, you know, because that's who intermarries there. Those are the types of interfaith marriages that they're concerned about or talking about or, you know, more prevalent. Mm -hmm. Um, Christian-Muslim interfaith marriage is more common in Europe, uh, statistically, you know, it's a more higher percentage of interfaith marriages are Christian and Muslim in Europe than they are here. Um, but even here, if you go to an area like Chicago or Detroit that has an older multi-generation Muslim American community, you will see more interfaith marriages there as well. So it depends on time and it depends on geography. That's really fascinating how all of those different factors play into interfaith marriages, and it sounds like it kind of evolves as the generations continue to grow mm-hmm. and as yeah. people continue to move regionally. Exactly, and you have different you know, uh, immigrant populations coming into different areas and eventually assimilating to one degree or another and intermarrying to one degree or another. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I just want to remind listeners that you are listening to the Texas Conflict Coach blog talk radio program. And we are chatting with journalist Susan Katzmiller and the author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions and One Interfaith Family. Susan, you shared with us a little bit about what interfaith marriages are and a little bit about what your background is. What are some options for families to overcome societal pressures that they may experience being in an interfaith marriage? I would say that the most important thing is for the two partners in the couple to be really united in whatever pathway that they are choosing to follow. And they often have to be strong in resisting pressure that is an external pressure on them to do it a certain way, to make a certain choice, to be a certain kind of interfaith family. And that pressure could be coming from extended family members or from religious institutions or clergy trying to tell you, you know, that there's only one right way to be an interfaith family and this is the way you should do it. Um, Mm -hmm. What I have have seen is that no one pathway is going to work for every interfaith family. It really depends on each of the partners, on what they're bringing to the marriage, on what their religious identification and history is. It also depends on their relationships with their extended family, and it depends on their geography in terms of what kinds of religious communities are going to be available to them as an interfaith family. So there are sort of three major pathways that interfaith families can take. Uh, The most traditional way is to pick one religion for the family. And that can work really well, especially if one partner has no religion or is not interested in passing on their religion to the next generation, and they agree to have their partner's religion be sort of the family religion. So it can work. The problem for some families with that choice is that it makes it really hard for either partner to change their religious practice or identity or affiliation as they age. 
And often we do change. We're on these journeys and we change affiliation, we move away from a religion, we move towards a different religion. And when that happens and you've agreed with your partner before marriage to raise the kids with religion X, then it makes it really hard to renegotiate that in the midst of a marriage. So um, another problem with it is that sometimes when someone agrees to give up their religion for the sake of having a uniform family religion, they can have regrets later about having to put that religion Mm -hmm. aside or about not being able to pass it on to the children. And sometimes when you have children, you suddenly feel more connected to your own religion and you suddenly have this urge to pass it on. So that can be an issue for some families. So another way to solve the issue of how to have a uniform religious practice in the family is to decide not to be a religious family at all. So historically, some interfaith couples gave up on religious community because they felt they didn't really fit in anywhere as an interfaith family. Um, And in other cases, the couple may be both from two different religious cultures, but neither of them is interested in practicing religion anymore. And so they're just not interested in having a family religion. And that can work. And sometimes that family doesn't want God in their family, but they can find a community to join, either a secular humanist community such as the Ethical Society or Sunday Assembly, which provides a way to gather and support each other without necessarily having to have a common belief in God. And then a third pathway for interfaith families, which is the one I explore most most extensively in my book, is that an increasing number of families who want to give their interfaith children an interfaith education and interfaith literacy. So these are families that are raising their children with both family religions. And there are communities in major cities now that were created by and for interfaith families who want to celebrate both family religions and who support interfaith families in doing this. That's wonderful. It sounds like you've shared with us the common path that interfaith families have taken when they've decided to marry and have children. And so one of the paths is to pick one religion, and you explored some of the feelings that happen when someone decides to pick one religion. When the ch- when they have children, they may possibly want to incorporate the religion that maybe they didn't pick at the beginning of their union and right. so the other child can learn about that religion. And then there's also the idea of deciding not to do a religion, that the family has decided they're not interested in that, but instead they've decided to join a secular, humanistic community. Mm-hmm. A lot of millennials are not doing religion now, and and nobody really knows what to do about that or, you know, okay. whether anything should be should be done about it but there are an increasing number of of young families that simply don't see this as an important part of their lives for one reason or another. Interesting. And the other option that you also mentioned was to celebrate both religions, so to incorporate the religion of both the mother and the father or the spouse into that family. Right. And that's, you know, probably the newest and for some people – um the uh, 
you know, an option that they haven't thought about before or that they thought really wasn't allowed. Uh, historically, religious institutions have discouraged it, but mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of interfaith families are just kind of making the decision to do it anyway. So they see more benefit in having that interfaith literacy for their children than they see drawbacks. What really rings for me, too, what you mentioned, Susan, is this isn't a one-size-fits-all. Each family, each interfaith family is going to choose a path that works for them, and these are some of the paths that people have taken. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. People need to decide what works best for them and works best for their family. Absolutely. So we talked about those societal pressures. What are some of the myths? that are out there about interfaith marriage? Well, I would say one myth that's very common is that children will be confused if they learn both family religions. And in order to address that concern, I actually surveyed young adults who were raised with both religions for my book, and about 90% of them said that they were not confused by getting an interfaith education. Um, and even those who said they were confused kind of claimed that confusion as a positive, as a kind of intellectual wrestling. Um, and instead, they reported that learning about both religions gave them better religious literacy. It made them appreciate both families' religions, and it helped them feel connected to their extended family on both sides. Um, and so a related myth is that choosing one religion is always the best decision for an interfaith family. And I think that had been the traditional way of looking at this. Um, But choosing one religion for the children can be hard on what we call the out parent, the parent whose religion is not chosen, especially as the children get older and the out parent feels kind of isolated because the children are now the same religion as one spouse but not the other spouse. Um, Mm -hmm. And... And the children who are raised with one religion, and I include myself in this, because my parents agreed to raise their children as Jews. So I was raised in Reformed Judaism. I did not learn anything about Christianity. Um, And for me, as an adult, I regretted not learning about my mother's religion, about Christianity. And I really had to do remedial interfaith education for myself in adulthood in order to better understand that other religion in our family because it doesn't go away. You know, you you are an interfaith family, whether you choose one religion or no religions or both religions. I think no matter what label you choose for an interfaith child, no matter what formal affiliation and religion you want to give them, I think they really benefit from having some interfaith education from learning something about both of the family religions. And so I urge interfaith families to give their children some education in both, even if they're going to have uh, be given an identity with only one. When it comes to having the conversation the, with the child regarding religion, are there some tools or strategies or resources where people can reference when they're thinking about their child is old enough and they want to share with them the decision that they made when their child was younger to practice Judaism and not practice Christianity or 
however they made their decision, if they want to share that with their child, are there any resources for that to have that conversation? Uh, I, I would say that the, the most important thing is to realize as a parent that whatever choices you make for your child, whatever you tell them, um, however that discussion evolves when they're coming of age, you know, in their teens, they're going to start having their own feelings and making their own decisions. And ultimately, as parents, we don't control what they grow up to be. They will make their own choices. Even if we give them one or both or none, they're going to make choices for themselves. And so we have to just learn as parents to let go because every child grows up to make their own decisions in adulthood about their own religious identity, their own religious practice, and we just kind of have to be confident that we've given them some tools, some education that will help them uh, in their process as an adult. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful for me, not looking at, not having the knowledge that I have about interfaith marriages to have a different perspective on what not only the parents may experience when they're making this decision, but also how the children may experience this as well, because there's two different experiences, and not all of these experiences are going to be the same. Exactly. And because I see it as an interfaith child myself and as an interfaith parent whose kids have grown, I can sort of put both of those sets of of lenses on. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that brings us to... Mm-hmm. I I just wanted to say that brings us to our assignment for the week or the call to action, but I didn't want to cut you off if there was something you wanted to add to that conversation. No, no, I'm anxious to get to a call to action. (laughs) (laughs) So what we'd like to do is just let our listeners thought about interfaith families, and we've talked about some resources, and we've talked about some societal pressures they may experience and some of the common paths that they can take when they're in those moments. So what is your assignment for our listeners, knowing what they know now, their call to action so they can move forward? So I think the call to action is that all of us, children and adults, especially right now in our country where there's a lot of tension over differences, religious differences, cultural differences, all of us could benefit from more interfaith education. And so I was going to give you some resources really for the parents or for young couples to help each other learn more about your own religion, learn more about your partner's religion, learn more about the religions in your geographic area. Um, And one place to do that is called the Pluralism Project at Harvard University. And so if you go to pluralism.org, they actually have um, some curriculum, some films, some videos that you can watch on religious diversity. And um, there's one that looks at the lives of three American women, a Buddhist, a Hindu, and a Muslim. And those are really interesting to watch and help you start thinking about educating ourselves about 
interfaith education and how we might then impart that to our children. Um, Another resource, especially if you are affiliated with a college or university, if you are a college or university student or if you're a professor or you have some connection to your local uh, college or university, uh, this is called the Interfaith Youth Corps, and they do great interfaith education programs for students at universities. Um, And you can go to their website, uh, ifyc.org, interfaithyouthcore.org, and take a quiz uh, to find out what your interfaith literacy level is. Um, and then finally, I have a lot of material. I have been writing blogs for interfaith families for, I think, nine years now on my own blog. So I have hundreds of essays on this topic. If you're interested, uh, that website, my blog is onbeingbost.com, and it's linked to my author website, which is susankatzmiller.com. And you'll find links on there to my book and um, a lot more information about how to engage with interfaith families and how to support and benefit from having interfaith families in your community, in your religious community. Uh, And I do a lot of consulting with clergy and religious educators on how to do that successfully. That's a really powerful call to action. Education is is very important. You only know what you know, right? And so now that they've had a glimpse as to what interfaith marriages look like, they can continue learning by visiting pluralism org by going to ifyc.org and also going over to your blog. And there, they're going to have a wealth of experiences from you as well since you've been doing your blog for nine years. Yep. Is there any contact information you would like to give the listeners if they just want to reach out to you and continue having the conversation offline? Um, there are there is contact info on my website, or I am active on Twitter. It's at Susan Katz Miller. I also have a Facebook author page. If you search Susan Katz K A T Z Miller, three names, no hyphen on Facebook, you'll you'll find my author page. Um, and if you are an interfaith family looking for other families in your area who are celebrating both religions, any two religions, um, then join our network of interfaith family groups on Facebook, and that's a place where people in different geographic regions can find each other and support each other. Great. So they can contact you via Twitter at Susan Katz and also via Facebook, and there's also a networking group that they can join too to find local families that are celebrating both faiths. Right. Wonderful. What final message would you like to leave with the listener, Susan? Thank you so much for being on the program. It's been a pleasure, and this conversation has really been enlightening and eye-opening for me. So I hope listeners have also benefited from it as well. I enjoyed being with you. And as my final message, I would just say, 
in the past year, we have seen increasing tension over these religious and cultural differences in our country. And I would just urge people, rather than seeing interfaith families as a problem or a source of conflict, I would urge your listeners to see them as inspiring, as individuals involved in interfaith bridge building and peacemaking on a daily basis, as families who are helping to spread love in a world that very much needs more love right now. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Texas Conflict Coach. We hope you enjoyed the program. You can find all of our podcasts archived to listen at your convenience at texasconflictcoach.com or download the podcast at iTunes or Stitcher Radio. You can also become a Facebook fan of Conflict Connections or Twitter me at TX Conflict Coach. 